Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I mean, 95% of deforestation today, basically all of deforestation today is happening in the tropics, where you've got these just these really carbon-rich ecosystems which store a lot of carbon. And obviously when you chop that forest down, that carbon is lost and drives climate change. But then also it's just a massive loss, loss of biodiversity, especially these tropical ecosystems are really, really rich in a wide variety of beautiful life, and we're basically just destroying it. What the really, like, shocking thing to me is just that once it's gone, it's gone, and you know, we're going to get it back. Many of the environmental changes you can reverse or, or reduce in some way, but when it comes to species, once you drive a species to extinction, that's it, gone forever. That's geoscientist Dr. Hannah Ritchie, and this is the Plant Proof Podcast. Hi friends, hope you're doing well, keeping fit, staying healthy and are excited for the week ahead. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. For new listeners, welcome. Great to have you here. Hope this is the first of many times we get a chance to hang out together. By way of background, I'm Simon Hill, qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist and host of this show. You're in my hands for the next little bit and I promise I don't take that lightly. I realize your time is valuable and there's thousands of podcasts to listen to. Keeping this introduction super tight today, before I introduce my incredible guest, just an FYI, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is out May 4th and is now available for pre-order at plantproof.com forward slash book. That's plantproof.com forward slash book. It's essentially my perspective on why we are confused about what to eat, where the science lies, and the things we need to consider when optimizing a plant-based diet, be it plant-predominant or plant-exclusive. 100% of proceeds from my end are being donated to Half Cut, a not-for-profit organization who are protecting the Daintree rainforest here in Australia from deforestation which if you've been listening to this show for a while, is a key component of mitigating climate change and improving the health of our planet. Each book sold will actually protect two square metres of rainforest. That's pretty cool if you ask me. So jump over to plantproof.com forward slash book and make sure you have your copy on pre-order. Now, today's guest, geoscientist and senior researcher, at Our World in Data, Dr. Hannah Ritchie. Hannah is one of my favorite researchers looking at the environmental impact of agriculture. And I know it's two environmental episodes in a row with Dr. Foley last week and now Hannah. That wasn't intentional by any means, just a natural consequence of my curiosity to learn more about this area from world experts and to share that information with you. It's such an unbelievably important topic and what an opportunity to again hear from one of the world leaders in this space who is so incredibly in touch with the data looking at how our food choices impact the health of our planet. So without further ado, this is me and Dr. Hannah Ritchie. I'll catch you 
on the other side. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to the show. Hi, Simon. Thanks very much for having me. This one has certainly been a long time in the making. Gosh, I think we we had emails going back and forth, trading emails pre-COVID when you were helping me out with some of the data, some of the information that I've used in my book where I talk about planetary health. So thank you for that. And I'm super, super excited and very happy that we've been able to find a time to finally make this happen. I think a lot of the delay was uh, on my part, so I'm glad that we can finally uh, have this chat. Perhaps a, a really nice way to start this, just to preface the entire conversation before we get into some of the data side of things. It'd be good to learn a little bit about your own personal road towards doing what it is that you do today. From my understanding, you've done quite a bit of formal education at university level. Can you run me through what inspired you to take the path that you have and and what that university journey has looked like? So my background is I did most of my education at the University of Edinburgh and very much focused on environmental sustainability. So I did my bachelor's degree was in environmental geoscience, which was very broad, so covered everything from climate to land use to oceans to biogeochemical cycles. And then in my kind of master's, I kind of more specialised on the climate side of things. So my master's was in, in carbon management, um, so very much focused on the climate. But what I liked about that course was I had the kind of science background, but I didn't really have any background in the economics or business side of things. And I think the integration of all those factors in terms of providing solutions is really important. So that was kind of my my motivation for doing that. By that point, I kind of just almost had like an absolute pile on of basically how bad things were and basically all the damage that, that humanity was doing on the environment. And that was very much how all of the courses were framed around. So it was taking toll on you personally in, in terms of your positivity and optimism? Yeah, I think I, after about five plus years of just he- basically hearing about all the environmental problems that are predominantly just caused by human behaviour and not really seeing many positives or way out of that, like I think I, I was very much phased in what could I actually contribute to, to finding solutions and were there solutions there. I think at one point I had just a, quite a rapid shift and I think a really rapid shift in that perspective came from um, I mean it's been a big motivation for me in the work that I do but I don't know if you've heard of Hans Rosling who very much focuses on the kind of human dimensions and how much human progress we've made in terms of health, life expectancy, declines in poverty and I think reframing the problem from just a here's all the bad stuff the humans are doing to the environment to a this has came at a cost of human progress and it's not all been bad. We've made massive leaps and bounds on the human dimension. It's came at the cost of the environment. But actually, that really changed my perspective from this is actually what humans can do and if we take these problems seriously, we can go forward continuing human progress but preserving the environment at the same time. Um, and I think that made a massive a massive difference to my outlook. And that's kind of how I went into my PhD. So my PhD was also at Edinburgh. And it was really focused on um, basically how we can feed 
human population a, a good nutritious diet and that means everyone a good nutritious diet in a way that doesn't basically just, just destroy the environment and how we can combine those two things. And no doubt we'll peel back some of the layers and, and go through some of that data. I've shared many of your articles to the Plant Proof community, friends and family, and I know that these articles have been shared by so many people across the world. When I think about those articles and the writing that you do, I think you've done a fantastic job at not only finding the right information that we can trust, but making it in a way that is really, really easy for people to digest. It's one of the neat things I think that you're doing with our world in data is making that data very accessible and approachable, which brings me to the work that you're doing with our world in data and Oxford University. Can you break down what it is that you now spend your days thinking about and researching and and what are the important things for us to understand about these two organisations that you work with? Yeah, so I'm a a researcher at the University of Oxford um, as part of this programme, the Oxford Programme on Global Development. Um, and basically there we, we produce this online web publication, Our Road and Data. Um, and there we are a mix of um, kind of academics, writers and kind of web developers. And really like a lot of what you just said in terms of the sheer ability and the accessibility of, of the work we do is, is exactly what we, we hope to achieve. So I think what's very, very we're very, very aware of is that there are millions of researchers in the world that are producing amazing work, but it sits behind these paywalls and academic papers and wrapped up in jargon and doesn't actually reach a broad audience that can actually use it and put it into practice and form policies um, around it. So really, our, our job there is almost like a tran- almost I kind of frame it as a translation service of. Um, this is the, the output of all of these amazing researchers and how can we communicate that in a really accessible but but evidence-based way. Um, so n- no clickbaity headlines that you might see in the media from like press releases. Um, this mix of staying close to the research but presenting it very, very clearly. And this kind of speaks to what you said just before around sometimes if you're just digesting the news, for example, and, and therefore really just looking at single events that are occurring day to day, we can miss the big picture changes that take place over the course of years and decades, which is where some of the positivity and optimism lies. And there's this beautiful example on Our World and Data's website, I was reading it earlier, which speaks to poverty and the decline in extreme poverty over the last 25 years spoke to the fact that in no day during that time did any major media run a headline around poverty falling by 130,000 people per day, which is what it would have worked out to be as an average. Is that something that you're very conscious about, looking at, at sort of data that changes over a, a very long period of time? Yeah, so I think the the motivation there is the news reports on stuff that is eventful and kind of out of the ordinary. That's the whole point of the news. It has to be a a story, an unexpected story around these events. So it focuses on these single events, but actually the really the really significant changes that shape the world, whether that's the environment or poverty or health, are these kind of gradual changes that kind of 
develop day by day by day, but one after the other, which on, on any given day might not seem like a lot, but cumulatively over years or decades is absolutely massive and absolutely transformative. But it would be incredibly boring if the newspaper ran the same headline every day, like as you said, a hundred, like every, I mean, the, the pandemic has kind of thrown this, this out of the water, but for the last couple of decades, you could have ran the headline, 137,000 people escaped extreme poverty today, which is an incredibly positive message and moving in the right direction. But you're just never going to see that with your with the kind of typical news digest um, diet because it's just, I mean, it's just not newsworthy. You mentioned governments before and policy, and it makes me wonder, the, the data that you are putting out with our world in data. Are you trying to reach anyone in particular or are you just putting it out and then it's shared where it's shared? Is it for individuals or, or are you actively engaging with governments and politicians and, and things like that? I think it's a really, we have our audiences are really, really broad mix. I think we try to basically reach as many people as possible, but there's certain elements to it. So there's just like, dual public that wants information, Googles for information, and we want to be, we want, basically we want to be the top Google results, so we think when they're, when people are searching for stuff, they're going to find something good that's evidence-based and hopefully sticks to the research rather than something that just someone has thrown up online and hasn't really fact-checked. Um, but we, beyond that, we just have a really broad range, and a lot of it is either communicating to people so they can put that into practice, like, for example, informing policymakers on how they can potentially make better decisions, um, but also people that will build on our work and also then propagate that to an even larger audience. So journalists, for example, will get... If we if we put out information and 10 journalists of really big newspapers grab on that and then they also share it to their millions of readers, then we just reach a much larger audience. And then there's also another element where it's just um, like researchers, for example. There's a lot of time and effort wasted by researchers reproducing the same stuff that's already there to even get to the start point of doing their analysis. So if we can do this in like one super clean way where, hey, here's all your input data, saves countless, countless hours of their time uh, and they can then just actually do the the groundbreaking um, stuff on the frontier. There's probably too many to comment on or, or remember, but if you were to think about the sharing of your articles, the ones that you've personally written, or perhaps the data that you're most proud of, are there any particular articles of example that you've been really excited by, how they've been amplified throughout the world? Um, yeah, there's a lot of examples. I mean, it's always pretty exciting when someone like Bill Gates or someone shares your work, obviously. I mean, we know that we get millions of people reading your work, but I think that can you can almost become quite desensitised to that. So actually what I really like is when someone I really respect in my field shares it like, hey, this is this article's really good, this is a good summary of the research. Because, I mean, to, to me that just means, oh, good, I've done my job properly and haven't made any mistakes because the expert is also saying that it's, it's correct. Um, so I really like that. There are there are two ways that you can disagree with stuff. You can disagree on the facts and you can disagree with the interpretation of the facts. And what we really like to do is nail the first bit. So have the facts really, really clear. And then there's always many, many ways that you can interpret the facts. And we like it when we see discussions of often in conflicting direct directions. 
trying to have a discussion about why this is the case or why this has happened. Um, and we like when people are building it on the same the same facts, but having a, a broader discussion on that. So we actually quite like seeing it on like both sides of the spectrum. And I think that even the COVID stuff has been crazy in that regard. Like the COVID data that we've put out, we've had everyone from, and we weren't super proud of this, but we've had, had like Donald Trump has been sharing our stuff, but at the same time, Joe Biden and um, Dr. Fauci have also been sharing our stuff. So there's loads of people on many different sides of that debate, but they're all basing it on the same data. What you're speaking about in terms of the success of an article is it's really interesting. It's something that I think about in my own communication, finding that right balance to appeal to people looking at it from different perspectives. The, the experts, like you say, would probably be more likely looking at the data itself and, and what went into creating it and the interpretation and the everyday person probably looking added a bit more in terms of how easy is it to understand? How easy is this information for me to access and make sense of? The, the balance there in terms of kind of pleasing the experts, but also writing in just a really clear way for people that that's just not their background is, is really important and something we're continually working on. I think write, just writing well is very, very difficult. And I think people massively underestimate how difficult that is. So I think a lot of the process there comes from lots and lots of kind of editorial feedback. Like I think what the one of the plus points we have in the team is that we have like quite very diverse backgrounds and we call all kind of have, have our kind of area of expertise that we work on. But the kind of process there would be I would write stuff on food and deforestation and climate. And then I think I initially write it in a way that almost tries to please the expert too much because I'm conscious of them not being happy that I'm misrepresenting the research in some way. But I think that often like kind of clogs up the, the article and then it's just not clear enough for just a general reader. So then I'll send it to someone else in the team, like Max, for example, who's not from my same background, he's an economist. And he almost reads it from an outside perspective of someone without this expertise. And then it becomes clear, like, no, this is too much. Um, and... I think then trying to balance those two things, usually what I do is I, I we then like put the the more uh, in-depth stuff in like a footnote. So if the expert complains, it's like I have the information there. It's just not bang in the middle of the text. And there's just lots and lots of back and forwards on that. And as I said, I think the fact that we're all from different backgrounds really helps overall of that process. It's a fine balance that I really appreciate I can I can definitely see how if you make it too sort of digestible and, and strip out too much information it's hard to please that person who wants every bit of detail and you've got two different people you're trying to please at the same time what about the process of actually finding the articles the the evidence, peer-reviewed research, or the data that you then feed into these articles, what's that process look like? Is that something that you do personally or is that something the team does? A lot of it is done collaboratively as a team. Like we now have a, like we've we've actually changed 
a lot in terms of structure in the last year. So we now have, like, it used to be just kind of the researchers of the research and all of the data, whereas now we have this kind of separate data management team who, who, who are really helpful in that dimension. In terms of, like, sourcing, we have a mix, like, it's a mix of drawing on resources from kind of these large global data sets from just international organisations. So, like, the food stuff, a lot of the stuff comes from the FAO, which... I think what people massively underestimate is there's a massive bank of data in there. Um, it's just like really, really clunky, really hard to navigate. Like unless you spend hours poring over it, like you just won't get the messages from it. So like actually a big part of our job is just taking the data that's already there and just like picking out this is actually what the data is telling us. But it's also combining that like a lot of my stuff just comes from poring over the academic research. And there, because I have a kind of background in this area, obviously helps that I kind of know what the the best papers are from kind of previous experience. But then it's also like continually trying to keep on top of like what is the new research that's coming out. So I'm continually like bookmark and then just have to set aside loads of time to pour over it and make sure that everything we have is still up to date. Because I mean, that's a big challenge. Like we're always trying to build on what we already have and expand the amount that we have, but it's also keeping on top of all of the stuff that's already there that's up-to-date and correct still. I'm sure something that you would be conscious of, we, we all have our own confirmation biases that we need to try and keep in check and, and, and certain worldviews and, and things like that. Is there anything that you have looked at and perhaps when you've gone through the data or new data's come out that you've changed your position on or that you see a little bit differently? That happens all the time in areas that I don't, like I I cover all of the food, climate, environment stuff, but there's also like many other dimensions to our work that, that we cover. So like we frame it as like the world's largest problems, which is obviously really broad. So often I'm doing research and stuff that I don't have a background on. So I just, I don't really go into it with particularly strong biases or... Um, a clear understanding so I'm always like learning stuff in that dimension I think in my own area I think yeah there's stuff I come across all the time that I think I kind of change opinion on like I think in terms of the diet stuff I'm pescatarian uh, so I like eat fish and I eat small amounts of dairy but I think what's becoming like abundantly clear to me even in the last couple of weeks when I've been doing stuff on like opportunity costs of land it was very obvious to me before but it's just like Sometimes you just see the numbers and it just like really hits you. It's very, very clear that there's there's massive kind of climate environmental benefits to less of a vegetarian diet with dairy and more of a diet with either zero or even chicken. Like I think I think what's weird is that uh, the vegetarian diet is very, very popular and seen as an a very environmentally friendly diet, but. Actually, if you didn't want to go fully vegan, like by far the best option is to like cut out all uh, beef and dairy and just eat small amounts of chicken. But for some reason, just like the vegan plus chicken diet is just not a thing. Um, and I think it probably should be a thing. Yeah, we don't have a label for, for that one yet. No. But I must say it's, it's refreshing to hear you say that. You're, you're human, just like everyone else, and, and grappling with not just the data, but also changing behavior, changing lifestyle. This is not easy stuff. So I think 
people will like to hear that, that it's something that you think about as well, just like everyone else. So I was going to say, I think there's just different lenses that you can look at it through. Like I think I think I came to the way that I eat because I was primarily looking at the environmental costs um, and that was my primary reason for going pescatarian. And to be honest, at the time, like the whole animal welfare thing was just not really a massive thing for me, not because I hate animals, but just, I, I don't know, it just wasn't a primary motivation. But like, I think what's become like very clear to me and is also just not a message that's really sinking in for people was that the, I think people assume that those two go hand in hand, that the best way of raising animals is also the most environmentally friendly way of raising animals. And that's just not the case. Often, if you want to reduce the environmental impacts of animal farming as much as possible it's to cram them into as small a space as possible which is obviously terrible for animal welfare um so I think I often just stumble upon these kind of conflicts where I kind of have a kind of ethical dilemma about what what matters more to me um and I come across that stuff all the time yeah I I want to circle back to that let's let's put a pin in that and and make sure we come back to that because I I think that's a very interesting point because you're right, many of us have been led to believe that grass-fed beef, for example, is better for the environment and the animal. I'm interested in digging into that and seeing what your perspective is on that. Before we do that, you cover a really wide range of topics with your work. And at the start, I alluded to the fact that this was a bit of a, a long time coming episode. And you got super busy with collating, uh, pulling all the data on COVID-19 with your team. And I'm wondering at a a very top line level, if you were to summarize the things that you found as a group and collated, what is it that you think is most interesting about COVID-19 that perhaps not many people realize? Yeah, I think the last year has been quite crazy for us. I think uh, like a little bit almost flies in the face of the what we discussed earlier in terms of like the daily news stuff. So I think we we've always really poised ourselves as like the long term news, so like not focusing on like daily updates. And like quite conversely, over the last year, we've been doing daily updates of kind of newsworthy data. So about this time last year, we're kind of in the dilemma of. Uh, this looks like it could be, I mean, we frame ourselves as covering the world's largest problems. This looks like it could be one of the world's largest problems soon. Should we be doing that? Um, And I think in the end, we decided probably. One of the things that surprised us is how integral just this basic data work has been. I think we really expected that at some point, one of the large international organisations would step up and do this. Um, and they haven't really been doing this. Like if you look at the amount of kind of communication data work that's been done over the past year, like a shocking amount has almost been done by volunteers. I mean, we're not necessarily volunteers because we we don't do this as like free labour, but in a sense, we didn't have to do this. We could have just focused on climate and deforestation and all that. So we kind of did it by by choice. I think that's been like very, very surprising Overall, like the, the struggles to get countries to produce this very, very basic data sets on what's going on in the global situation has been really 
odd. Really took countries a long, long time to just start producing like a daily Excel file with this. This is the latest data on cases and deaths, and so like really, really basic um, kind of data stuff has been has been really surprising. So does that mean that at some points, particularly early on, the the graphs that you were putting together and publishing, showing basic data on COVID, were were missing data for certain countries. Um, initially, yes. And what we what ended up doing initially was because no one was producing that as like Excel, like basic Excel files or data files, for like the first few months or so, I was saying like every evening the WHO would put out, this is the daily release for all the countries. So they're obviously feeding in some way, but they would produce it as a PDF. And then I would have to copy out the numbers for every single country out of the PDF to put it in a data file to put on a chart. I mean, that just seemed very, very clunky. And then I think in terms of surprising stuff, I think I think it relates back to your question earlier of like, is there stuff that we change our mind on? Or there's loads of stuff that we've been puzzled by or changed our minds on over the, the whole course of the pandemic. I think just in global health in general, it's just been a massive learning exercise and learning curve. It's almost been like, doing science in public where we think we I mean this is what happens in science all the time you have a hypothesis and people test it and it's right or it's wrong and then you try to disprove it but I think this has almost been happening in the public domain which I think for a lot of people has created a lot of uncertainty but it's just just it's just the the the, the, the basic scientific process and this is how this all all evolves over time but with that comes testing hypotheses and getting them wrong and I think for us, trying to understand the global situation, there's been loads of scenarios where that was the case. Like, I think for a long time, we expected that lower income countries would be much harder hit than they have been. And they've been much more, or appear to be much more resilient than they have been. There's like countries have managed to like completely bend that curve and we just have no idea how they've managed to do that. Like a big, big like question mark for us is, like India, for example, was really just skyrocketing for a really long time. And we were, well, I was really concerned um, about how they could possibly turn this. They already had really, really strict restrictions in place. Um, and somehow they've lifted restrictions and the, the cases have came down. And just, I don't know how that's happened, but um, there's just been loads of examples of that. How do the different testing protocols in different countries seem to to affect the data? Yeah, I mean, testing has been a big thing. And that's actually very early on. We basically built kind of the global testing database collecting all of this data because we knew it was basically integral to like understanding what's happening with case counts. For many lower income countries, some of it is probably explained by just lower testing. But I... I don't think it's. I don't think that's the full story. That you can argue like they've just had not many recorded deaths because they've just not been tested, um, so they're just not reporting them as COVID deaths. But then you would still expect to see if there were like massive death tolls happening in in these countries. Even if you weren't seeing it in like official reports, there would be some leakage of some footage or photos of like people die in the streets or like mass graves or somehow you would expect with the kind of information technology we have that, that there would be some leakage of information there um, and, and we just don't see that. So tell me, moving 
forward from here, what's the the plan for the the COVID nineteen data? Will you continue to track it, and then hopefully one day, the idea being that with a complete data set, it helps countries or can inform countries about how to better handle pandemics in the future and to look at the difference between countries that locked down versus didn't lock down or, or different sort of regulations like Sweden, for example. Uh, what happened when vaccinations were rolled out? Is is that the idea of continuing to have this data set evolve? Yeah, so as long as the, the pandemic continues, we'll continue tracking the data. Like vaccination for us, I mean, we're still tracking like cases and deaths and testing, um, and that's kind of rumbling on in the background. But like I think that a big part of our work now is building the global vaccination data data set, and hopefully that massively grows over the next um, year, um, and we'll continue tracking that. But I think, as you say, I think um, after this, and I don't know when this will be, there will be like a major kind of post-analysis I think for, for many, many years or, or decades, um, I'm sure there'll be massive amounts of research going to understanding, as you see, all of these interactions of policy decisions, demographic factors, genetic factors on who's been affected. I think there's just so much analysis that can be done there that can help us in the future better prepare for pandemics and, um, yeah, and, and kind of health vaccination distribution stuff overall, I think. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book, plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Let's change gears a little bit here and and jump into agriculture and how the food we grow affects the health of the planet. Firstly, in the big picture of planetary health, why is it important for us to be having this conversation around agriculture and how we produce food? There's a couple of dimensions to this. I think the one that always steals the kind of limelight is the, the role of agriculture in climate change. And I think the role there is quite undeniable. So our food system contributes about a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions, which in itself, I like to think of that breakdown in a simplified way as kind of 75% is the energy and industry and then 20, 25% is food. Um, so it's a massive chunk, obviously. I think looking at it in a static view today tells one story, but I think looking forward, there's a whole other dimension to this in the fact that there are certain elements of the energy industry system that we, we don't yet have solutions to. So like, we don't know how to have zero carbon air travel, for example. But many of the elements we do, and we can see a path forward on which with more investment and deployment of these technologies, we can we can decarbonize electricity. We know we can decarbonize electricity. We can shift to electric cars um, and and basically get those emissions down. With food, it's just not clear how we, how we can do that. We need to eat food. The food that we produce 
nearly always produces emissions. It's, it's just really not clear how we can we can get rid of those emissions. And when you look forward at kind of future scenarios in terms of the carbon budget that we could emit to stay within our climate targets, in a couple of decades, food will basically consume the, the, the entirety of that budget that you're allowed in any one year. So basically, the, the point is it's impossible to meet our climate targets if we don't massively change the way we produce and eat food. So I think that's one one dimension to it, but and that really steals the limelight. But I think there's just many other dimensions to it in terms of the water, water, global water consumption. Seventy percent of, of water withdrawals come from agriculture, and we know that water stress is going to become an increasing issue. Agriculture is the the leading driver of biodiversity loss worldwide. Even there, I think the focus often comes on climate change as 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 the, as the thing that's killing species across the world. And in some regards, that's true. But actually, at the moment, pales in comparison to just habitat loss driven by agriculture. So I think there's many elements to the impact that our food system has on on, on the environment. It's not just climate change. Okay, so let's break this down. Some of the things we can go through here are water use and, and land use and maybe a little bit about emissions as well changes that we can make on a personal level, but also, I guess, thinking big picture in terms of transforming the food system and and what that looks like. Perhaps we start on land use. I know that you wrote a really interesting article recently on the drivers of deforestation. Can you explain, firstly, what we mean by land use and what the article on deforestation unearthed? Yeah, so I think probably land use is quite a kind of academic-y term. And Max and the team who reviews my work has told me, told me this many times. People don't know what land use means, like use another word. Basically, it's just what we, uh, I don't know if a better word is like land cover or it's basically how we use the land. So whether the land is used for forest or we're using it to build a city or whether it's wild grassland or whether it's a farmland, um, it's basically just how, how, like, basically what kind of system sits on top of that land. And I think one of the statistics that really shocks people is that, like, half of the world's habitable land is used for agriculture. Um, in essence, we basically turned the world into a massive farm um, and obviously didn't used to be like that. And they are around 75% of that is, is driven by animal agriculture. So either pasture grazing land or um, cropland to grow animal feed. Um, and as I said, now half of habitable land is used for agriculture and it didn't used to be that way. And the way the world used to look is that all of that farmland was either forest or, or wild grasslands. Everyone automatically thinks of forests, and forests are great, but also wild grasslands and other kind of natural vegetation is also great and essential habitat. So basically, over the last 10,000 years, we've kind of reduced our, our global forests by a third. And that has came basically because of expansion of agriculture. And this may seem obvious, but if anyone's wondering what is the environmental or planetary health cost of losing a third of the forest? Uh, the biggest, I mean, there's a couple of main costs. 
one is the obvious carbon cost. Uh, so so forests store a lot of carbon, especially tropical forests. I mean, 95% of deforestation today, basically all of deforestation today is happening in the tropics, where you've got these just this really carbon-rich ecosystems which store a lot of carbon. And obviously when you chop that forest down, that, that's, that carbon is lost and, and drives climate change. But then also it's just a massive loss loss of biodiversity, especially these tropical ecosystems are really, really rich in a wide variety of beautiful life and we're basically just destroying it. What the really like shocking thing to me is just that like many of these species, like once it's gone, it's gone and you're never going to get it back. Like many of the environmental changes you can reverse or, or reduce in some way, but when it comes to species, once you drive a species to extinction, it, that's it gone forever. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's so distant from our daily lives, so far removed from our line of sight. You know, that the saying, out of sight, out of mind. And I think when you can explain what's actually happening, the, the system that we're in and, and how our actions affect the planet in a way that is hard to fathom, most people would want to learn more about that and not contribute to the loss of biodiversity where possible. It's just a matter of being able to make that information accessible, which is what you're doing. You mentioned that most of this deforestation is happening in tropical regions. What are the the key drivers of this, if you were to list the, the top two or three? I mean, it's nearly all driven by agriculture. I think. What, what, I mean, there's a couple of things that can cause deforestation, or we would use the land for that we would deforest. So you could use it for mining or cities, or agriculture. But actually, the kind of cities urbanization component is really really small. It's it's basically all agriculture. Um, and within agriculture, there's I would say there's kind of three dominant drivers. The the biggest one is is beef by far. I think that's around 40% of, of deforestation is driven by beef. And then I think the other two big ones would be, would be soy um, and, and palm oil. On the topic of soy, I have a, a question for you. I think most people understand today that producing more beef is resulting in deforestation. It does, however, still seem to be some confusion or a bit of a misconception, I think, around the damage that soy is causing and what the sources of that damage are. When people hear someone eats tofu or drinks soy milk, for example, and and points to the deforestation that's happening, perhaps implying or not perhaps, often implying that these foods are directly responsible for the mass loss of trees and, and life in tropical rainforests. Can you describe why this is a, a misconception, or I guess I should ask you first, is this a misconception? And if it is, why? Yeah, it is a massive misconception. When I point out that animal agriculture is one of the key drivers of, of deforestation and climate change more generally, one of the key arguments back from that is, yeah, but most of the meat substitutes like soy and stuff, they're also really bad for the environment. They very much think Brazil deforestation equals soy which is equal to my uh, soy substitute sausages or tofu or tempeh. And that's just a massive, massive misconception. So more than three quarters, or I think 77% of, of soy 
in the world goes towards animal feed. So a very small amount goes directly to human food. And actually, within the diet, the human food, actually most of that goes to vegetable oils. So only this kind of tofu, soy, uh, soy milk, tempeh, meat substitutes, there's only 4% of, of global soy production. Uh, so a really, really tiny, tiny, tiny component. The other driver of deforestation that you mentioned, so you, you mentioned beef, soy, which we've just covered, and, and the third being palm oil. I read a, a recent article of yours on palm oil. There was some really, really interesting points in there. Talk to me about palm oil and, and the deforestation that is happening. And also, I guess, some of the nuance around its production. Is it as simple as just stopping palm oil production and, and as consumers, us opting out? Or are there repercussions of that move that we should be aware of? Yeah, I think this is maybe going to be one of my more... I haven't really promoted this article that much. Um, I think it's kind of going to be a bit controversial. But this is what the researchers are saying in the kind of peer-reviewed articles. For some reason, the message is not really making it out to the public. I, I'm going to stick my neck out and say that Pamela has got like a little bit of the sore end of the stick. I think it's it's hard to dispute that palm oil has driven significant amount of deforestation and environmental destruction, particularly, almost predominantly in Malaysia and Indonesia, who are the, ma- the main producers. I think that's hard to deny. Where I think it's got a little bit of an unwarranted bad reputation is that it is almost like the best of the bad evils in terms of we have this massively growing demand for vegetable oils and basically palm oil has stepped up to the plate and the reason that palm oil has stepped up to the plate is because it's an incredibly productive crop. The oil yields that you get from palm compared to any of the other vegetable oils are massive. So if you compare it to, example, coconut oil. So it's like very, very popular for brands these days to promote themselves as we don't do palm oil, we do coconut oil. And I think everyone buys into that as, oh, they're being really, really sustainable. And they definitely use that as a branding thing. Uh, ben and Jerry's, you massively overplay this, like, we do palm oil free, we do coconut oil. The yields of coconut oil are 20 times lower than palm oil. So if you wanted to meet the same demand for oil from, from coconut oil, you need 20 times the amount of land. That land is going to have to come from somewhere and it's going to have to come from the tropics. It's probably going to have to come from a tropical forest. It's a very interesting point. We have to consider if you were to remove food, what replaces it? This is something I I talk about a lot compared to what? Creating context before evaluating how healthy or in this case how sustainable something is. It's hard to to judge how healthy food is if you're not thinking about what would someone be eating instead. And this very much sounds like quite a similar conversation here with palm oil and, and sustainability. What do you see the ultimate solution is in terms of palm oil and and supplying the world with the calories that are acquired from fats. Is this something that you've looked at or is it sort of beyond the scope of the data that you've pulled together? No, I don't think I have an incredibly concrete solution, but there are a couple of like low hanging fruits. I think think I'm still in favour of using palm oil for most of the food um, element to the vegetable oil demand. Um, and there are many calculations that, that basically come out that you can you can produce meet the world's vegetable oil demand 
from this without destroying any more forests. Um, it's possible with the land that's available to grow palm oil in a way that doesn't cut down forests. So, like, my first recommendation is that we basically need zero deforestation policies on, on palm oil production. And actually, the, the roundtable for sustainable palm oil basically does that, tries to provide certification that the palm oil that you're buying has not been grown on, on deforested land. I think the, the other kind of low-hanging fruit there is that, like, a, it's not a massive amount, but... In terms of the palm oil that rich countries import, a lot of that goes to biofuels, which just seems absolutely crazy, and we need to stop that. There's absolutely no reason to be putting palm oil in your car. For rich countries to, to be doing that, from a sustainability point of view, is just unacceptable, and they should stop it. Just quickly, on the first uh, point you mentioned there, sustainable palm oil not being grown on, on deforested land, wouldn't most of the world's palm oil be on land that has been deforested at some stage? Or are you talking about more recent deforestation from a certain point? Yeah, I mean, the the, the stuff that's grown on land that's already been deforested, I mean, it's there now, like we may as well. Um, yeah, it's about not growing it on newly deforested land. Basically, you shouldn't be cutting down any more trees to, to replace that with palm oil. And the idea of well, why wouldn't you just rewild that land? It goes back to your original point that if you did that, there are things we need to consider. You would need to grow oil somewhere else and it could end up doing more damage. So I get that and that's very interesting. I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about in the back of my mind, and this really depends on on where countries are at, who's buying these products, is that a lot of the palm oil would end up in ultra-processed foods. So how important is changing the overall dietary pattern of a country so they're getting more of their calories from other foods that are more sustainable than oils? I think yeah, I think that could play a role for some countries. I think it's quite unlikely at a global level because realistically in the coming decades, most of that demand is going to be coming from low- to middle-income countries that are not consuming a lot of that already there's an argument there that you can almost intervene from a policy perspective to try to make sure that those countries don't go down some of the bad dietary paths that rich countries have gone down but I'm not overly optimistic that that's going to be massively feasible I think they're kind of heading that direction and I don't see that massively changing it's definitely an interesting topic. It's obviously very nuanced, uh, much, much more nuanced than, than than many of us are aware of. And I hope as I am, the listeners are always open to being open-minded when new data presents. I know at the start when I brought up palm oil, you said this isn't an article you've widely shared and, and you almost sounded a bit worried about drawing attention to it. But if it is the data and that's what it's showing, then we need to be able to talk about it. Yeah, I, I, I don't think the solution is as simple. I'm not going to wave the flag saying, hey, everyone consume as much palm oil as you possibly can. But I think we need to face the fact that the demand has to come from somewhere. And I think people just have in their head this, this weird, like, there's never going to be any displacement or substitution dilemma going on. There's, there's always a substitution dilemma going on. 
Yeah, and I think it also comes down to our individual circumstances here a little bit. If if you're in a position where you don't need to buy palm oil and can eat less ultra-processed foods, then great. There's there's no reason to go out of your way to buy palm oil when you can make more sustainable food choices. Let's segue across to greenhouse gas emissions. What are the the important things that the data sort of reveals that we need to be thinking about with regards to how our food choices affect carbon or greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture? I think what really just shines through in the data on this is that, and I've written about this quite a lot, um, is that by far the biggest change you can make is changing what you eat, not where it comes from or how it's produced. Those elements can be important but from an individual perspective is if there's like one like shining light on I have like one decision here to make how do I get the biggest bang for my buck it's changing what you eat not where it comes from one of my biggest frustrations I think is that this whole like local food movement which there's many positive elements to it and there are many reasons why people would want to shop local or buy local and that's like totally within their value judgment on what matters on, on their buying decisions. But I think the the notion that by buying local, you're automatically buying low carbon is just not true, and it just doesn't match up with the research. And I've had conversations with people in the past, like people that I definitely would have thought would have known better because they almost kind of work in tangentially in this space, and I thought would have been aware of the data would like very, very openly argue that just like I eat my local meat because it's low carbon, because it's local. <laughs> and that's just not what the data says. I guess if you're not in the field of science, if you're not studying this, it does seem logical that transport of food is going to make up a significant portion of the greenhouse gas emissions from our food. And I used to believe that until I looked at the data and your article Uh, And I know that that's an extremely well-cited article on it, which makes it very clear to see how small the contribution of transport is to the greenhouse gas footprint of our food. If we look at that, pretty much all whole plants, all whole plants have a lower greenhouse gas emission footprint than animal foods. Are there any exceptions? Are there any animal foods that are better than or closer to plant foods? Just on that point, like, there's a very, very clear logic there. And I don't want to imply that anyone should feel stupid for thinking that. Like, very, very logical that flying has a high carbon footprint. So if you're flying something from the other side of the world, then of course your food will have a, a high carbon footprint. Why logically that, that doesn't stack up is because a tiny, tiny percentage of food is, is flown. So only like 0.16%, I think, of food miles are, are flown so like most of it's coming by boat, which is a relatively low carbon footprint. And then the other element on why that's just not as big a deal as people might think it is, is because the production and farm stage of, of growing food is, is where all of the emissions really are. Um, so those combination of things is why the, the local thing is not as big a deal as, as people might think it is. Um, in terms of the kind of hierarchy of foods in terms of carbon footprint, like as you say, most of the, the plant-based foods are, are always at the bottom uh, and have the lowest carbon footprint. But there are actually really large differences between animal source foods, um, which, again, people, I think, underestimate 
the effect that not only like reducing the amount of meat that you eat can have, but by substituting one for the other. So the kind of hierarchy is kind of plant-based foods, usually best, um, followed by kind of eggs. Chicken is also pretty low carbon footprint. Then you would have pork, dairy, and then kind of lamb and beef are like way, way at the top, um, kind of almost as like massive, massive outliers. So even my overall recommendation is, is always to reduce meat and dairy consumption if you want to reduce your carbon footprint. But actually substituting chicken for beef or lamb has, has a massive impact. If people feel like they can't go fully vegan or, or vegetarian, then, then, then that substitution actually makes a massive difference. Absolutely. That's very good information for people to have. Not everyone's in a position to or wants to adopt a completely plant-exclusive diet. So it's good to understand what changes can you make that will still have a significant contribution. It might have been one of the papers you were talking about earlier, actually, that looked at what they called a two-thirds vegan diet. Have you seen that one? I think it it came out of John Hopkins University. It showed a a two-third vegan diet or what they called a two-third vegan diet, which was essentially like having a plant-based breakfast and lunch and then a dinner with animal foods, for example, a a piece of chicken with vegetables. It showed that that two-third vegan diet performed significantly better in terms of greenhouse gas footprint compared to a vegetarian diet that had a lot of dairy. So I thought that was particularly interesting. And it, it just speaks to the fact that it doesn't have to be an all or nothing move to be part of the solution. There are many levers that we can pull and just pulling a few of the big ones makes a big difference. For example, reducing red meat and dairy in particular, where you can in favor of some of these other animal foods if you're wanting to, to keep some on the plate, hugely lowers the environmental footprint of your diet. Hannah, what about seafood? From your understanding, where does this come into the overall picture of greenhouse gas emissions and how sustainable our diet is? Yeah, seafood is a little bit of a mixed bag. You can get some kind of aquaculture systems which have a really high footprint just because they need really high energy inputs. But in general, fish can have like a, a pretty small carbon footprint. Like a, I think a reasonable way of thinking at it about it is that like a lot of the reason that livestock are, are quite environmentally intensive, not just in terms of carbon, but also land, is that they're quite inefficient at transforming vegetables into meat or, or dairy products. So... If you think about how much you need to feed a cow for it to even gain one kilogram of, of, of beef that you you would get out of that, like most of the energy and protein there is is lost. And, and when I say lost, I mean just like keeping the animal alive, like it has a base metabolic rate, which you're just needing to feed it calories to, to keep it alive. And then any additional calories will get transformed into weight gain that you can then get back as a product. But that overall pro- process is very inefficient is more inefficient for the larger the animal, which is why beef is generally worst, then pork is a, a bit better, and then chicken, the smallest animal, is is generally better. Again, fish is, is a, well, not all fish, but most fish are like pretty small and have like 
that efficiency of converting feed into um, a product at the end of it is quite efficient. So overall, like fish can have a, a pretty small carbon footprint. But as I said, some of the aquaculture systems can have a, a, a quite a large footprint if you're, if you're not careful. And in terms of the broader picture of sustainability and the types of seafood, uh, you said you follow a, a pescatarian diet. So I'm assuming that you've thought about this or looked into this. What else is important to consider here from your research? If someone is choosing to eat fish, is it better for the environment to be buying farm fish or wild fish? Is this something that you've looked at? The aquaculture story is interesting because... Um to be relatively blunt, aquaculture has kind of saved wild fish stocks. Like for a while, wild fish stocks were doing really, really bad because we were just basically taking them out at a way higher rate than than the populations could restore. Um, they've kind of stabilised for a long time now, and that's basically because aquaculture has, has rapidly, rapidly increased. So we now get more more fish from aquaculture than we do from wild stocks, which in a way is is, is good. In terms of kind of stuff to go by in terms of sustainability on fish, like I think a big one is like I know a lot of the labels and stuff on foods these days are quite confusing, but going for fish that are kind of like line and pole caught rather than kind of dredged is a good barometer to go by. That's kind of the key thing that I look for. Um, and knowing a couple of the types of fish that, that are, are less depleted than others is also useful. In terms of a global solution, where do you see dietary patterns needing to shift to? I'm sure you're familiar with the Eat Lancet recommendations that came out recently where over 30 scientists from across the world came together to communicate where they thought diets needed to, to shift to feed 11 billion people in a sustainable manner by 2050. If you were sitting down with a friend and they said to you, look, I, I want to change my diet, I want to adopt a diet that is beneficial for the planet and is scalable and something that the entire world can get behind and it's going to allow us to transform our food system, what would your advice be? From a purely like empirical, data-led, this is the, the way to minimise the environmental cost of your diet, my advice would always be vegan. But actually, that's I'm probably going to go against the grain and say that's probably not what I would recommend. Partly because, I mean, it would depend on the person, but partly because I think for a lot of people, they see, they see that maybe quite unfairly as a step too far for them or and there's no way that I could just cut it out completely. It was kind of relates to our discussion earlier um, that for some people, they maybe just feel like they can't completely eliminate it. And I think... Sometimes trying to push people too far in that direction almost pushes them in the other opposite direction where they feel like they just can't make any changes at all and kind of switch off. I think I probably have had a, a larger impact on influencing the people around me by not going down that approach. Like I, I don't have a, a counterfactual scenario where if I went completely vegan, I would be able to gauge how people would react to that. But I would say I've actually been reasonably effective in taking a slightly more moderate approach and like I wouldn't say I in any way preach to the people around me like I, I often just don't talk about it unless people ask me about it because I feel like I don't want to shove it in people's faces but I've seen like massive behavioral changes from the people around me just from a kind of osmosis effect 
leading people down that direction, I think, then opens them up to ask more questions about it, which then gets you into the discussion where you can actually make more progress. So I think my overall advice would be to start with substituting beef and dairy for for chicken. And then I think once people actually start taking those initial steps, become much more open to seeing that there are a wide range of plant-based foods that are actually not just like eating lettuce and lentils, which I think the is a little bit of the stigma at the moment. They see that there's a wide range of incredibly tasty and nutritious foods and they get more and more into it and then actually continue shifting towards a more plant-based diet. So I probably wouldn't recommend this like straightforward transition, just go fully vegan um, initially. Yeah, we... You and I, we follow slightly different diets. I want to emphasize slightly because for the most part, our diets would be very, very, very similar. We're, we're in alignment. I'm aligned with you. Pull the biggest levers that we can. For most people, this begins with red meat and dairy. Start to read more, learn more, and find the ultimate place that works for you that you can sustain in the long term. There really is no point jumping drastically to a new diet tomorrow that you can only sustain for a week. So for most people, it's about slowly stepping it out, developing the meaning behind the changes. And doing this slowly, I think, works better for most people, stepping it out, building confidence. And as you say, getting to understand this new way of eating will ultimately land you in a position that works for you, works for your family, works in your circumstances, and is aligned with your values and beliefs. And what we've been discussing is that this is not an all or nothing move. I want to re-emphasize that. You can be part of the solution by making changes and, and making the ones that work for you. Yeah, I think, uh, I think a bit of the problem at the moment is that, especially in the West, our whole diets have been built around this. You have, have meat, basically every meal, it's almost unimaginable that meat wouldn't be the centerpiece of the meal. And I think people, like, stepping away from that, for some people, they just can't envision, like, what, what on earth would I have? I think it's definitely the case that as people start to work towards that, they discover these whole new foods and way of eating and meals that they can build around it and creative recipes. And I think I think that there is definitely a stepwise gradual process that people end up in when they start um, on that journey. I want to pivot again slightly here to ask you some questions around protein requirements in the coming decades of growing population and, and helping developed countries become more developed. There will naturally be an increased requirement demand for protein. Where do you see the innovation of cellular agriculture and plant-based meat alternatives fitting into meeting this need for protein in a sustainable manner. Do you see these as helpful industries? I think definitely. Um, in terms of protein requirements, I think a little bit of what the environmental movement on this gets a little bit wrong is like I've seen loads of papers that have claimed that everyone in the world eats above the protein requirements, um, which for... A lot of countries, especially high-income countries, we eat way, way more than the protein requirements. For poorer countries, if you go purely on the basis of like total protein, I think the requirement's like 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is like overall not that much. 
But the problem there is that the diets in many of these countries are 80-plus percent cereals. Um, there's no correction in that calculation for um, protein quality. I think that almost gets kind of played against this debate from people on the other side that would argue that you can't get your protein requirements from a vegan diet, which is obviously just not the case. You can meet even with the correcting for amino acid profile and stuff. If you have the right mix of foods there, you can definitely get your protein requirements on a vegan diet. But many of the diets that are eaten around the world today, especially in poorer countries, they're meeting the total protein requirements, but they're not getting the right variety in there to get the protein quality. And I think that makes it very easy for people on the other side to to attack the kind of vegan diet. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Yeah, it's a a very extremely different set of circumstances to eating a a varied and nutritionally adequate plant-based diet with lots of whole grains and legumes and different fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds. These countries, as you say, may be existing, eating predominantly calories from a single type of grain. It's It's a different kind of vegan diet. I think that's what I think that feeds into the, the second part of your question, which is the reason that they um, that's the the diet there and not a more very varied vegan diet is is primarily cost like they can't afford this this richer variety of diet, which is why I think that many of these meat substitutes, cell based proteins, could play a really big role, but only if we really really massively drive down the costs and massive ma- massively scale up scalability. I think they'll only make a massive impact if they can massively undercut the price of meat. And meat there is almost a status symbol of wealth and richness and emulating what we have in the West. And I think if we don't manage to get these other technologies to scale and and able to undercut that, I think they're going to go down a very similar pathway that we've been down um, in the West. It would be nice for developed countries like the United Kingdom, like Australia, like America, who have, I don't want to say made mistakes because back to your original point earlier, a lot of our progress has been really positive and our expansion of our food and agriculture, although it has come at an environmental cost, it has helped us in in many ways. So, We've learned things along the way. What I'm getting at is through our learnings, I'd hope that we can help the developing countries not go down the exact same path as us and and help them develop and improve their quality of life and living in a more efficient way from a a food systems point of view. I don't don't think there's any malice in the way that we've gone down this pathway. That's just how we've produced food. That's how we produce food for millennia. It's just that we now are at a point where... It's possible to substitute to something better, and I think we need to substitute for something better. And I think your point on um, 
richer countries basically scaling up these solutions to help lower income countries is definitely the case. I think it's it's exactly the mirror image of what I would expect in the energy sphere. Um, you can make the very same argument for late fossil fuels, like the Industrial Revolution. We didn't purposely start burning these to cause climate change. We There was a purpose there to produce energy, and that was the available source. But now we need to substitute to, to renewables, and we need to get the costs of renewables low enough that poorer countries can skip the whole fossil massive fossil fuel phase uh, but scale up their energy with, with cheap renewables. I think the stories are, are almost parallel. Yeah, on the cost, perhaps we need some more data on the efficiency and, and conversion rates of cellular agriculture, which I'm sure will, will come in the not too distant future. It's only a matter of time. But it seems to be a no-brainer that on scaling the plant-based meat, it will become a much, much more efficient process and should end up being significantly cheaper than than meat-based equivalents once it's supplying enough people. I think the, the curve there is going to be in terms of scalability. The more and more we make, the cheaper and cheaper it gets. But I think there's a, a massive kind of, I mean, it's always the case with technologies, they're just in a massive initial phase of development and scale up that is going to be quite expensive to begin with, but will get progressively cheaper over time, hopefully. I've got a question for you in terms of plant foods. I don't want to make it out that all plant foods are equally as beneficial for the environment. While as a general rule of thumb, plants are significantly better than animal products, there is some nuance with certain plant foods being better than others. Two that that are often discussed are avocados and almonds. Have you looked at these two foods before? And if someone's eating a plant-rich diet and is conscious of their environmental footprint, what do you think about the inclusion of almonds and avocados in their diet? Ah, uh, they're fine. Um, the <laughs> I think the, the avocado story, like I actually put this on the whole local food thing because I think it's, it's often posed as a, a scenario, like I'm in the UK, like imagine shipping avocado, like or flying avocados all the way from South America. Like there's no way that that could be lower carbon than my local beef. And obviously they're shipped from South America and the, the, the carbon footprint is incredibly low. On the, the almond stuff, I think almond gets a little bit of bad press because it's, I mean, nuts in general are quite water intensive. That's definitely the case. Um, so I think there's there's often a context dependence there on, I think there needs to be slightly better distribution on where those are grown. I mean, California is the, the whole, is really dominant in terms of um, almond production. And I think you can run into kind of water requirement issues, but you can't, that's pos- definitely possible to overcome by redistribution of, of where you grow them. A question I always get a lot is like, which type of milk should I drink? Because the whole vegan or plant-based milks are becoming a much bigger thing, which is great. But there's now like a range of options. I think the point there is that any of the the plant-based options have a better environmental profile than, than cow's milk on every metric, whether it's land use or water or uh, CO2 emissions. So if you're substituting for any plant-based milk, it's a good thing. And then you can get into nuances of which one is better or worse or uh, I think oat, oat milk generally comes out best on most metrics but all are pretty good. 
Yeah, and you can get into that nuance and you can work out which one has the lowest footprint. But also back to my earlier point, you need to enjoy it. It needs to be sustainable for you because otherwise if you revert back to, say, dairy, then that wasn't such a great move for you. Maybe you would have been better off on a soy milk, for example, rather than oat milk. And people choose plant-based milks for different reasons. Soy milk is much higher in protein than oat milk. So there are some nutritional differences to consider depending on who the person is too. The other thing, and I'm not sure if you've looked at this in depth, there does seem to be some concern around almond farming and the bee population and the importance of bees. Is that something that you've read about or looked into? I've seen lots of headlines on it. I haven't seen many concrete studies on it. Actually, one of the things I'm working on at the moment is like it's been highly requested for a long time is this whole topic of biodiversity loss. Like overall, like I do all this stuff on climate and deforestation and stuff, but actually looking at the state of global diversity is kind of a topic I'm I'm tackling at the moment. In terms of the data and research, it's like very clear there are like different dimensions to it. So I'm kind of ticking off the, the easier ones, which is like what's happening to the mammal populations and what's happening to the coral reefs or the fish. One of the massive grey areas where I think it will take a long time to get through the research and pick out like what is the overall story here is like what's happening to insect populations. Let's put a, a long-term pin in that one and, and we'll come back and continue that conversation in another episode when you've gone through that data. We've spoken a little bit about water. Let's tackle that. In terms of our diets and the types of food on our plate, what is it that we need to be thinking about with regards to how much water goes into making the foods we eat? I think the first thing to acknowledge is that I think when it comes to like when people think of like water stress or water conservation, they their automatic thought goes to like turning off the tap when they're brushing their teeth or having a shorter shower, which in some local contexts, especially in dense cities and kind of drought prone areas, is definitely a thing. Um, but globally, I'm kind of macro level. Most of the water we use is used for agriculture. I think that's the the biggest thing to to keep in mind. With the carbon stuff and the land stuff, it's a little bit less to do with distribution. Those are more like global, macro, um, collaborative problems. A little bit of the water stuff is much more localised, so it's kind of harder to give these very, very high-level recommendations. You just have some local context where actually different ways of farming um, will just have a much, much larger impact on, on local water resources than others. Obviously, this is going to be heightened by climate change and especially in, in the tropics where water is more scarce and populations are also growing faster. So there you've got like a really complex combination web of, of local resource problems. In terms of overall carbon footprint, uh, water footprint, sorry, like many of the trends are are very similar to what we'd see for like carbon or or land. So beef, lamb, dairy has a has a high water footprint. Uh, nuts also have a high water footprint. Um, that's probably one thing to be slightly aware of if you're going more plant based. That there is there is potentially a, a bit of a water cost in terms of if you're eating a lot of nuts as substitutes. This is a silly question, but 
people may be thinking about this. Why is talking about our water use important? Water seems like such an abundantly available resource. Is it a reality, Hannah, that we could in the near future, the next 100 years or 20 years, run into problems with freshwater supply for humans? In some contexts, yes. That's it's realistic that many regions, especially population-dense regions, can come under significant water stress. Um, there's a couple of reasons that. One is that we are a, pretty much a water planet, but the, the amount of available fresh water resources that we can tap into is much, much more limited, um, and especially in local contexts. I mean, the key point with water is it's, it's very hard to move around. I mean, we have a lot of water here in Scotland, but we can't just ship that really across the world. That's going to be compounded by increased extremities in terms of water availability, either way too much at a given point in time in terms of floods or extreme drought. Uh, that combination of not having water exactly when you need it is a big issue. And then also water quality. So some of the kind of impacts of climate change especially nearer coasts, there is the potential that there you can basically really lower the, the, the water quality in terms of uh, influx of kind of saline water from, from coastal lines. And that's driven by one is kind of sea level rise and kind of basically seawater pushing further inland. Um, but also as you extract water from like ground pumps, which we, we do for agriculture and irrigation and stuff, Basically, the lower into the ground and, and the water table, you try to suck water up, which is basically happens when you try to suck more and more and more water out of the ground. You have a higher likelihood that you then hit the, the deeper water table, which is, is pretty saline. So it's not just overall water quality, but um, uh, water quantity, sorry, but also water quality, where you can end up with kind of saline waters that are you just can't use for agriculture. Okay, so in terms of the practical application of this information for people from a dietary perspective, because I'm assuming this this topic of water conservation is not just about diet, it's also about how you use water at home and water efficient appliances and shower heads and, and things like that. There are a bunch of things that we can consider, but from a food perspective, similar story to greenhouse gases in that the more whole plants that we can incorporate in our diet, the lower our dietary-related water footprint would be, but perhaps be a little bit conscious about the inclusion of nuts. Is that sort of the gist of it? Yeah, from a consumer perspective, I think that's that's the story. I think on the water stuff, there's, there's a whole other lens, much more on the producer side of things in terms of how we implement irrigation technologies and whether we can do desalinization. So I think there's a whole other like technological producer lens to the water story. Um, but from a consumer perspective, the overall guidelines, as you see, is probably quite similar to the, the carbon and land story. Something that you mentioned earlier that I said we'd come back to, you spoke about the fact that if we look at different ways of animal agriculture and I guess a, a spectrum of what's more ethical or less ethical, you said that sometimes that's not aligned with what's more sustainable or less sustainable. Run me through the, the point you're making here. I think there's maybe two elements to this. So the first is that my overall barometer on how to reduce the impacts of agriculture is 
to use the least amount of land possible. Like I think that whether we're growing crops or, or raising livestock, I think a big thing is we just need to massively reduce the amount of, of farmland that we have. We need to give it back for forests to regrow and wild grasslands to regrow. And from an animal livestock perspective, that's cramming them into a tighter space. That reduces the amount of land that we use for agriculture so we can grow other stuff and forests and trees. And then the other dimension to that is, like, it comes back to this discussion we had on, like, the unfortunate reality that animals burn calories um, staying alive. They also burn calories moving. The less they move, the less you need to feed them to produce meat. So from, like, a really horrible perspective, like, the best and most efficient way to grow meat is to stop animals moving and make them gain weight as fast as possible, which basically means cramming them into a smaller space. Yeah, I guess that's a dilemma when those two things are are pulling in in opposite directions. Fortunately, there are plant-based foods as options for people to decrease their reliance on on animal foods altogether. So there is a, a third option, which most of us do have. And it seems like the world is definitely starting to embrace this idea of eating a more plant-rich diet. It feels like this is the way the world is moving in many countries. Here in Australia, the idea of eating more plant-based is very much quickly becoming part of the mainstream narrative and, and being accepted. People eating, whether it's more flexitarian or pescatarian, vegetarian-style diets and, and cutting down on meat is that something that you feel as well it is I think I think a part of me I definitely do see the changes I think a part of me is like a little bit conscious of whether I'm just like now more living in a bubble where I've surrounded myself with people who have similar opinions I don't think that's the case I think it is a a broader transformation that's happening my biggest concern is always with pace I think it's changing but I think it's still changing way too slow if we want to actually make a massive difference in the next few decades. And on that, the urgency side of things, based on climate data, how urgent are these changes? How how important is it that things rapidly change in the next two decades? Is that just something that would be nice to see or is that really integral to actually helping prevent irreversible damage? If we don't change the how we eat and how we produce our food in the next few decades we'll miss our climate targets and we will lose massive amounts of precious forests and ecosystems i mean that's just the reality that's uh we have populations uh across the world that want and, and rightfully want a better diet and and need to increase agricultural production and it's not just about eating less meat. I think there's a mass. We need a massive transformation, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, where most agricultural growth is going to have to come from in the next couple of decades, because that's where the largest population growth is. There, they get really pretty poor crop yields across most crops, and they're going to need to produce more food. And if they can't increase yields, then it's going to have to come at the costs of tropical forests and ecosystems. Uh, so it's not just a, a story about eating less meat I think there's a massive just agricultural transformation um, that's needed across sub-Saharan Africa in particular otherwise we're going to lose a lot of kind of precious ecosystems. When you look at the the big picture some of the things that you're talking about now 
Do you feel like governments are treating this with enough urgency? What is it that you would like to see? What changes would you like to see from a, a government level, whether it's in developed or developing countries to, to help better navigate this space and avoid some of these things that you're talking about? I think on the climate stuff overall, governments are waking up a bit and taking a bit more action. I think I think I still think energy hogs the whole discussion on climate, which in some sense makes makes sense because it's seventy five percent of emissions. Um, but as we discussed earlier, like the food component is so integral towards meeting our targets that you can't you can't neglect it. But I think it's quite easy for governments to neglect it. The narrative of the whole energy story for governments is quite easy. Like People like the story that we can get off fossil fuels and we can produce our energy from nice solar panels and in this really clean way. I think with the food stuff, it often seems a lot more personal and there's like a bit more contention there in terms of governments not wanting to mandate consumer choices. And like I've also had this kind of... Um, issue with supermarkets, for example, they also don't want to like choice edit for their their customers, who are a bit less keen to get involved in that discussion. So I think there's a bit more resistance from governments there. What I would like to see from governments in the next couple of decades, as I said, I think behaviours and attitudes are changing. I'm I'm concerned that they're not changing quick enough. I don't think they're they're changing quick enough that we, we would get there from that alone. So I think we need these technological changes on on substitutes and and cell um, based meats to come in and, and become pretty cheap. So that the choice is almost inevitable. But there are a couple of additional things that could help get us there. One is a carbon tax. I would like to see a carbon tax because um, that just again massively shifts the economic incentives to to eat less uh, carbon intensive foods but also gives a benefit to, you know, the up-and-coming technologies that could be lower carbon, exacerbates the kind of price differential there. And I think there needs to be massive, as I said earlier, massive investments on just improving agricultural productivity in lower-income countries. So there needs to be a massive push on how can we increase crop yields in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and... The other one additional thing that I think richer countries need to contribute to is this opportunity costs of not cutting down forests. I think for lower-income countries, they're not just cutting down the forest for no reason. They're cutting down the forest because they need to grow food and they need an income. And if there's not an alternative economic source there, it's inevitable that that's going to happen. So there needs to be some... I mean, there's the kind of RED programme don't know if you're aware of that it's almost like a kind of mechanism pot of money where basically rich countries almost try to pay for opportunity costs for poorer countries not to cut down their forests it's kind of like a carbon offset scheme but by not cutting down the forest in the first place so basically if you're a farmer in brazil i will pay you money not to cut down the forest so i'm paying for the opportunity costs of the food that you could have grown on that land and i think if we're going to if we're to stop tropical deforestation, I think that's kind of inevitable. That we need some economic mechanism there that that makes up for these costs. So I think those are the key things that I think we need to address in the next few decades. Yeah, I think it would be 
a bit foolish of us to blame developing countries for wanting to do the same things that we've done. From, from where we're sitting now in a position of privilege to judge that as a negative thing would be a bit rich on our behalf. So as you say, it's completely understandable that they have those aspirations. I was going to say, as I said, like I said earlier, basically all of deforestation today is happening in the tropics. But that's only the case because all of the temperate um, countries, we cut down our forests a couple of centuries ago. It's just that that's now kind of out of out of mind. Like we've already done the damage a while ago, so we've kind of forgotten about it. But tropical countries today are just doing what we did uh, a couple of centuries ago. One thing that I'd like to see in developed countries, I think about here in Australia, and I might be in a slight bubble, but I do think that most of my friends and, and the people that I engage with are concerned about the planet's health. I think something that would make it really easy for them is some form of climate rating on packaging. So when they're at the supermarket, even if it was as simple as like a classic kind of traffic light type scenario that just helped people realize that when they pick up the beef, maybe that's not so much an every night food any, anymore. Maybe that's once every three days or once a week because it, it has a significantly greater toll on our planet and then points them in the right direction towards foods that are truly better for the planet. I think something like that could be very helpful from a consumer point of view. Is that something that you've ever thought about? I 100% agree, and I've tried to push for this a bit in the past. Uh, I think supermarkets are really reluctant to do it. I think it's this like choice editing thing, and I think they also just have relationships with suppliers to contend with. So obviously your beef producers would not be massively happy. But I agree that I think it needs to be, I actually think the best solution is the simple traffic light thing. Like we've heard, like in the UK, we have this um, program. It's the Carbon Trust, who kind of tried tried to do like this in small elements for a while. So like companies could put, if they'd done like a life cycle analysis of the the emissions from the supply chain, they could put it on the packet. And I think this, the one that springs to mind is like crisps. So crisps over here, um, a couple of the companies put the label on it, but they put the, the, the rather than some traffic light thing, they put like the grams of CO2 in the packet of crisps. And like people just did, like people did not get it. So like it was a 30 gram packet of crisps, but the carbon label was something like 270 grams. So like I overheard a conversation with someone saying, like, how can this packet have 270 grams of carbon, but it only weighs 30 grams? <laughs> like, they, couldn't, they, they just didn't understand the concept. Yeah, I think that's probably a little too complex. We're, we're talking about quick decisions here in the supermarket. It needs to be highly accessible information that's super user-friendly. One thing we haven't really touched on that I might ask before we wrap this one up because I, I think it's interesting and I think the listeners will find it interesting too. You talked about how this kind of dilemma exists between having animals grazing versus confined, the, the ethical dilemma and the fact that often the more sustainable option is the more confined, cramped conditions. Sometimes there's this conversation around clean beef or regenerative beef being good for the environment. So 
I'm wondering, when you published your article on the effect of transport on a food's environmental footprint and you said something along the lines of whether you buy it from the farmer next door or from far away, it's not the location that makes the carbon footprint of your dinner large, but the fact that it is beef. I'm sure some people said to you, yeah, but what about regenerative beef? Is this something that you've looked into? Yeah, I mean, I... I get this, obviously, I get this question and comment a lot. One of the key points is that the the whole notion that this is like some magic fix for climate change is like like way off. Like you've got this Alan Savory, uh, like actually the key to solving climate change is just to like have like regenerative agriculture and, and these massive beef farms. Like that's like way, way off. Like the research just does not back that up whatsoever. I mean, it's re- like it's it's totally reasonable that there are massive differences in the carbon footprint of beef depending on the production system. So I don't want to I don't want to draw away from the fact that the reality is like for at least for many many years we're going to continue producing beef. Like that's just a reality, and there are better ways of doing it, and we should be picking the systems where it has the, the lowest footprint. After the local one, I did a follow-up one that looked at the whole distribution and there's there's massive differences. And although the overall story is you're better to cut it out, the reality is that there are systems that do much, much, much better than other ones. The, the, the research on the regenerative agriculture is, the whole argument there is that you can basically sequester lots of carbon in the soil and generally the, the research doesn't really back that up. Some systems can store more carbon than other pasture systems, but often come at the cost of more land. So although you might store more per, per hectare, the fact is you're, you're still using much more land. And my general barometer on this is use as, li- as little land as possible. So there are massive trade-offs there that I think just don't stack up in the overall debate. I think that's a very good principle, a guiding principle to come back to for all of us to try and use as less land as possible to produce more calories. Hannah, this one's coming to the end. I, I definitely want to have you back on the show. You've, you've got so much to share. I feel like we've scraped the surface on this one. We've touched so many amazing topics. So thank you for that. I'm wondering, before I let you go, at the start, you mentioned after you finished your master's or, or during your master's, you sounded like you weren't so optimistic. You weren't very optimistic about where we find ourselves. And maybe you're a bit deflated in terms of the impact that you could personally have. And and could you help promote positive changes that would improve the world? You were really, really close with the data. When you zoom back out now and you're talking with friends or family, how does this sort of big picture view leave you feeling today? In a way, it's true that I, I work closely with the data, but I don't work as closely with the data as I would have if I was like solely into like this one like little area of research, which I might otherwise be doing as an academic. I think although I work with the data, like I think the point of our modern data is that we look at it at this very like high macro level where it's not just looking at one topic, it's looking at the overall system of how all of these problems interact and how we find combined solutions and where the trade-offs are, which I think overall makes me much more optimistic because it doesn't just bring in the environmental component, it brings in the, the human progress component. I'm optimistic given the past, 
progress we've made on the human dimensions that we are capable of, of solving problems and making progress if we put our resources in the right place. So I'm, I'm much, much more optimistic um, than I was back then. Like, I don't want to underestimate the challenge. I think it's, the odds are a little bit stacked against us and if, we shouldn't underestimate the scale of that challenge, but I'm still optimistic that we, that we can do it. And what a great story it would be to actually overcome this and to have that story entrenched in history. This is what humans were faced with in this time. And look at the way they reacted. Look at the way they responded and transformed the world. It would be incredible. We have this notion that really, really far back in time, humans were in like perfect harmony with nature and our systems are really sustainable. And that's just not true. Like it's completely false. The point is, humans have never been living sustainably with nature. That's never been a reality. I'm optimistic. This is one of the the. This is basically the first time in human history that actually it looks like it could be possible if we we make the right choices, which is obviously absolutely massive. I love that. There there is a really nice quote on the Our World and Data website. It says, "Many of the long trends are positive." many of the long trends are positive. It's a, it's a very short quote, but it speaks to what you were saying. When you can zoom back out and look at things over time, as a species, we've made many great improvements. So hopefully we keep moving in that direction, in particular with this conversation around it, the environment. Now, Our World and Data is a non-for-profit organization if people listening love what you're doing and have loved your message today, Hannah, how can they support your mission? Yeah, so we're a non-profit and we're based at the University of Oxford and we also have this, this non-profit branch. I mean, we have a donate page and that's like people 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 donate through that on the website, which is always like massively um, appreciated. But I think overall, like a, a big contribution to our mission is engaging with the content and sharing it and we're always very active on Twitter. Like a big, a big thing for us is understanding what people don't understand about our work, how we can improve. So we're always very active on there in terms of getting involved in discussion, and that that massively improves our content um, for everyone else. So I think, obviously, like the donate stuff is is really useful for us, but just engaging in the conversation makes a massive difference. Beautiful. And if people would like to connect with you and continue the conversation, is Twitter the best place for that? Yeah, Twitter. My handle is underscore Hannah Ritchie. Yeah. I'll pop that into the show notes. Thank you so much. As I said, it's a huge pleasure to have you on the show. And I really do hope we can do this again. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. There we go, friends. I hope you enjoyed that episode, derive some value from that plenty of golden nuggets in there. And the greatest thing of all is that all of this information is driven by data. That's central to the information Dr. Hannah Ritchie shares. Sometimes some of these concepts, discussions around land use, water use, greenhouse gas emissions, are a bit easier to make sense of, to stick, when you can look at visuals, at graphs and illustrations. So I've linked a bunch of Hannah's articles with great images into the show notes. And in my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, I dedicate an entire chapter, chapter nine, to discussing this topic in detail and have really interesting images designed by my designer, Chloe, who is absolutely incredible. 
So if you haven't pre-ordered that yet, you can do so at plantproof.com forward slash book, plantproof.com forward slash book. I can't wait for it to be in your hands. All right, that's all for today. Thanks for hanging out with me again. And I look forward to catching you in episode 121. Until then, more plants, my friends, more plants. More plants.